Well, good morning, everybody. Um, and welcome and welcome to uh, everybody online. It's always dangerous making fun of the guy who's going to be here for the next little while, isn't it? So, uh, last week Phil announced that I was positive. I tested positive and that I was pregnant. Um, this week, correcting my sermon. I'm just taking notes. The Lord is watching and so am I. Uh, and Dano, I'm, I'm proud of you, mate. Just, he's a phenomenal, I, I don't even know if you're that young anymore. I just, he, uh, I remember him at, at KCS and uh, one of the best scrum halves I ever coached. Just a, uh, and did, I think I baptized you. Did I baptize you? Yeah, just, just phenomenal. So really blessed by that. Thank you so much. If I was going to give this morning's title, uh, sermon a title, it would be The Forgotten God. The Forgotten God, and I know that book has become famous by Francis Chan about the Holy Spirit, but this is a different kind of focus this morning. Um, before we get there, there's an excellent book was written in 2005 called Soul Searching by Christian Smith, and he did a, a large study on the then young adults, and um, bearing in mind that uh, especially when you get to my age or older, we think of millennials as being young. Can I tell you, it, they're not. Millennials are 27 to 42 years old, so those of you who are uh, Gen X like me, then we need to just recognize we're getting old. Boomers, I'm not even going to get there. Um, sorry. Then you've got Gen Z, or the Zoomers as they're called. They are aged between uh, 15 through to 26, 27. These are the uh, generation that have never known anything but the internet. Most of them have never known anything but the iPhone. And so when we talk as Gen X or boomers or traditionalists about life and Christianity, there is a complete disconnect in so many different ways, just generationally. But in his book, Soul Searching, he did this big study in the then young adults, and they, he came up with this term called moral therapeutic deism. That When asked about young people's relationship, and these young people are now mums and dads, uh, aged up to 42, um, when asked about their belief and thoughts about God, then they came up with different phraseology and terms that, uh, that Smith put together in this term moral therapeutic deism. Moral is that God wants us to be nice. He rewards the good and withholds the naughty, a little bit like Santa Claus. In fact, it was a term used in the book, the Santa Claus God. Therapeutic, God just wants us all to be happy. And then finally, deism, God is distant and not involved in our daily lives. God may get involved occasionally, but on the whole, God, quote, functions like an idea, not a personal being, actively present in our lives. He works one day a year, maybe, depending on our needs and our wants. That is the paradigm that our world looks through, they don't necessarily reject God completely, but that, if they do say they believe in God, that is the kind of God they believe in. As it was said by Voltaire, he said this, if God has made us in his image, we have returned the favor to him. Every culture, every generation reinvents God in a way that suits them, that molds him in a way that is actually uh, appropriate for their lives. It's really dangerous. So as every culture is quietly molding and shaping their view of God, then we come to the realization that actually 
if things don't go well for these generations and perhaps for you because it is not contingent on age. It might be that you think of moral therapeutic deism and you're much older than a, a, a Gen Z but you still see God in such a way that is inappropriate. You've molded him into a, a, an image that suits you. The problem with that is when things go wrong. When things go wrong in life, then we tend to judge God, and we start asking big questions, why, and we get mad at him, and we have those really God moments. This isn't what I signed up for. The question is, and I want you to remember this phrase as we look at this scripture today, is I just want you to think about whether we have a God of our imagination or a God of the Bible. Because the God of our imagination is very, very different from the God of our Bible most of the time. And that's where the challenge becomes because the Bible is where a lot of people have the greatest difficulty. It is the center point of everything we believe in. Everything that I'm going to say this morning is in the Bible. But that doesn't mean to say that people accept that because they have struggles with the Bible. So we have a choice. When we look at scriptures like we're about to look at, we have a choice. We can either reject them or as a pastor we can skip over them. I'm grateful that we're in a church where we don't skip over difficult passages just because they're difficult to preach from. Or they might stretch you. They might make you angry. They might actually cause you to stay awake at night and go, really, God? That's that script. That's the scripture we're going to look at this morning. So as we do that, let's study it in a way that we know what is true about God rather than what we want to be true. As Keller said, let's go where the evidence takes us rather than where we want the evidence to take us. And then secondly, I'd ask, let's remember not to make God comply with how we think God should be. Because if we look at Scripture like we're about to through the opposite of these two things, then it becomes very, very troubling. And I want to say that as we step into this Scripture, perhaps one of the most confusing and troubling Scriptures in the Bible, then we need to make sure that we, uh, that we understand that we need passages like this. That for me to skip over it, it's actually detrimental not only to God, but ultimately to you. We need passages like this. So let's jump in. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 through to 2. We're just going to go through it bit by bit. Second Samuel chapter 6. If you want to turn there, that would be amazing. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. How many of you have seen Raised the Lost Ark? I, wow. How many of you have got no idea what I'm talking about? More hands, friends. That's good news because we've got younger people in the house. I love that. Raised the Lost Ark, one of my favorite movies. Remember that scene at the end when they opened the Ark of the Covenant and everybody's faces start melting? I really thought about whether to put that image up there. The Lord spoke, and I did not. But when we think of the Ark of the Covenant, it's kind of this fable around it. It was a symbol that God put into place in the Scriptures that was profoundly powerful. And uh, if you look, this is, uh, this is not an actual picture, but this is a computer graphic of what it would have looked like. Uh, just this beautiful golden ark laden by golden on the outside and on the inside. And you've got the cherubim on the top. And this ark, this symbol, is seen through the scripture to a certain point until Jeremiah tells us we don't need it anymore. 
because uh, it's just a box. doesn't mean much anymore. We'll come to that in a second. But this ark was the center point, the symbol of God's presence, of God's holiness, and God's grace. God's presence in that it was placed in the Holy of Holies, which could only be entered by the high priest. I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it, was, it represented his presence. You couldn't just go to the ark in any old way. You couldn't even enter where the ark was. Just once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. It represented his holiness. It could not be approached. It represented God's grace, the mercy seat. God said to Moses, I will meet you at the mercy seat. I will meet you here, is what God said. Profoundly powerful image. And it had been stolen by the Philistines about 70 years before this scripture that we're looking at this morning. And that was a bad idea. If you read the scripture around what happened to the Philistines after they stole the ark, it's just like, you can imagine them going, what on earth is going on? God wreaked havoc through the nation. And so they took the ark and they just literally placed it just inside of Judah and then backed off. Interestingly, Saul let it sit there for 50 years, completely uninterested. That'll preach. Uninterested in the grace of God, uninterested in the presence of God, uninterested in his holiness. Just let it sit there. And then we have David. He says, we need the ark back. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets, which I thought was a website, but, and cymbals. You're welcome, castanet. Um, this is the parade. We're bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. This is good news for everybody. So they throw a big party, verse 5 tells us. And then verse 6, it says, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. This instinctive action from Uzzah. He's walking, they're driving this cart, the scripture says, the cart and the oxen stumble. He instinctively puts his hand out to the ark to steady it. God kills him. Do you remember my two points? Let's be careful as we approach scriptures like this. Let's be careful that we don't make assumptions based on who we think God is. Let's actually look at what the scripture says is going on. This instinctive move from Uzzah. You can imagine this party suddenly coming to a dead halt. Literally. Silence. People recoil. Harps turn to horror. Tambourines turn to terror. Castanets and cymbals turn to crying and wailing. And this is where the door of revelation cracks open for us. And we can either walk by, making assumptions about God, or perhaps dragging God into the courts of our judgment and making him guilty, saying, really, God? But if you look closely at this story, what you're actually going to see is if you look too carefully, too closely, I should say, and only see that on its own in the whole of Scripture, you miss a mega theme going all the way through the Old Testament. 
from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through to Revelation, you're going to see this message resonating loudly that God is holy. That God is holy. This mega theme, it's a profound mega theme. This this idea that God is so much higher than us that we can't attain to his holiness. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out into the house of Abinadab. This is the verse just before, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. So why did I swap these verses around? Because we needed to see the full impact of what the event was. But we also need to go back the verse before to see the reason why. To see the reason why God responded in such a way. Because it was a reflection of his character, his beauty, his grace, and his holiness. You see, God had given us very, very specific uh, details in his scriptures as to how this ark should be moved. Remember what it represented, his holiness. This presence of God that man could not approach apart from one time a year with a great deal of preparation. And what did they do? They carried the ark of God. Not the Levites, as was instructed. That even how they were told to carry it was wrong. You've got these golden ringlets around the bottom of the ark and the the golden poles encased. You didn't throw this on the back of an oxen cart. They carried it. And what's really interesting, if you look at that scripture again, is that Ahio went before the ark. He's having a great old time. That they, were, they carried it, they were driving it, and they put it on a new cart. You see, as we look at this beautiful representation of what God's grace and holiness was and his presence, they were carrying it in not only in an appropriate way, an appropriate at best, blasphemous at worst. They were belittling God because God is holy. This word holy is very difficult for us to understand in our culture because this word now has been, has been kind of denigrated to uh, almost like a, an exclamation. It's like, wow, that, that isn't what holy actually means. Holy comes from the Hebrew word kadosh. It means to cut. Further to that, it means to cut off, separate. It means that God is in a class of his own. Never been seen before. Never existed. It is so far beyond our paradigm of thought that it actually, we we can't grasp it. Remember what God said to Moses. You cannot see me because if you see me, you will die. Well, that doesn't seem very fair, God. You see, this idea that God is so much holier than us, this isn't something that he does. This is something he is. In any more way that I do being human. I am human. Everything is an outworking of my humanity. It's impossible for me to suddenly decide, hey, today I'm going to be a bird. Well, no, that's crazy because I'm human. I was born that way. Now, God wasn't born, but God is holy in the same way. And this, all analogies fail when it comes to God. But God doesn't, God, everything God does, he functions out of his holiness. It's who he is. 
And not only that is he so separate, so different, so entirely new to us, we also know that holiness means entirely morally pure all the time in every way. So now we have a lens to put on. So now we can look at this story not through the lens of what we think God should be or how we think God should act, but actually we place the lens of God is holy on and read the story through that lens. Now you're looking through the Bible, at the Bible through its mega theme rather than just its story alone and rejecting it. The mega theme is God is holy. It's who he is. In Exodus 15, Moses, who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder? Who is like you? We have no understanding of the power and the glory and the presence of God all wrapped up in his holiness. God is holy in his justice, in his love. He's holy in his mercy. He's holy in his compassion. He's holy in his grace. He's holy in his anger. He's holy in his faithfulness. He is holy in his mercy. He is holy in his patience. And you could continue the list. Everything God does, everything that he thinks, everything he says is that he is holy. And for us to think of God in any other way is belittling him and not understanding the enormity of how big he is. All superlatives fail when it comes to trying to describe who God is. But good news, friends, David and Uzzah came up with a new plan. Oh, we're in safe hands. Let's come up with a new plan. They had completely forgotten who God is. They'd completely forgotten of the enormity and the power and the presence and the grace and mercy of who God was that day. They threw God on the back of a cart, not an old cart, let's put him on a new cart because he deserves that. Let's completely disregard everything that God has said about himself. They did what they thought was best. They even borrowed the idea from whom, do you think? The Philistines. That'll preach. Entering God's presence through the lens and the thoughts of our culture, rather than through the way that God actually dictates we should. You see, we build our own carts, don't we? We want the presence of God. Even in the person who is the furthest away, who would be rejecting God on a daily basis, they really want the presence of God. They might not put it in that terminology, but what they want is what the presence of God actually represents. As I said a couple of weeks ago, they want the kingdom, but without the king, as Mark Sayers said in his book. They want the kingdom without the king. They want the love and the joy and the peace and the comfort and the grace and the presence They want all that. We want all that. It's wired within us as being humans. But what we don't want is we don't want God's way to find it. We want to build our own carts, borrowed from other things, and figure it out ourselves. We want to be our own kings. We want to be our own gods. We want to be what we want to be, and we forget who he is. And yet God is unchanging. A few years ago, uh, my, my lovely wife, who sat up there, we were chatting about this morning, um, she went on a, an adventure with uh, uh, Tracy Bennett. Now, I don't know if Tracy's here, uh, Pete and Tracy, many of you know, 
And uh, Sarah and Tracy often go hiking, and this particular day they decided they were going to try cross-country skiing. What could go wrong? Um, the thing is, is that I've noticed over the years, whenever Tracy and Sarah get together, stuff happens. Like, I'm talking like forest fire. They got caught in the middle of a forest fire the last adventure they were on and had to escape down the river. I'm not even joking. That's a whole other illustration, but it's true. Uh, they decided they would go uh, cross-country skiing. Cross-country skiing is safe. There's nothing wrong with cross-country skiing. You're not really having to do much skill. You just have to get into these, these rails and just hold on, right? Hmm. I'm not a skier. I've chatted with people who are skiers, and they say, actually, cross-country skiing can be lethal because the tracks can get really deep, and if you need to stop, you have to lift one ski out, and, and you have to stop yourself, but if you don't manage to lift one ski out well, then bad things can happen. Good to know. After the fact, that would have been great advice before. So Sarah and Tracy, I believe that Tracy was just in front of Sarah, uh, were going down and they hit, uh, you know those beautiful spring kind of, or oh, oh, warmer days where the snow melts just a little bit and then later on in the afternoon it freezes again? So they go down a hill and they're just picking up speed to the point where I don't actually know what, ha I know what happened as in the after effects. I don't know the whole circumstance of what happened. What I do know is that Tracy ended up throwing herself in, in front of Sarah to try and stop her. Sarah goes bailing out and snaps the bone on the top part of her arm, just above her elbow. Now, there's a whole other second part, too, to this story, because uh, about a year later, she did it again. But that's a whole other illustration. Um, not skiing, because she said, I'm not going skiing. But and so Sarah hits the ground, or more effectively, I think, hits Tracy, who also gets injured, and, and breaks, badly breaks, on, on the top of this mountain. Now, I don't know about you, but I was brought up in the 70s and 80s, and when I hurt myself, as a little boy, I would trip up over on the step or something. And my first priority is that I wanted my mum. I wanted my mum to do two things. I wanted my mum to come and comfort me. And I wanted my mum to come and slap the step. Naughty step. <laughs> Naughty. How dare you? It's like somehow that made me feel better. You, know, you trip over, you smack your head on the doorframe. You need your mum to come and say, well, you naughty doorframe. Which is mad because it's got nothing to do with the door frame. It's got everything to do with the toddler having a big head and walking everywhere at this angle, right? He's just, Sarah did not come back blaming the mountain. You hit the mountain, it's going to hurt you. You don't go, oh, my skiing is amazing. It's the mountain's fault. You'd be like, really? She didn't do that. You don't blame the mountain on which you fall. The mountain is just being the mountain, right? This hasn't changed. It's just, I am what I am. I is what I is. You hit me hard. I'm going to leave you a mark, and it's going to hurt. You see, the mountain expects us to prepare ourselves well for what is about to happen. You decide to go skiing on a mountain, prep yourself, because the mountain is what it is. I am addicted to Alone, the TV program. We are going through it season by season. Phil and I chat about it often. And we kind of, him and I kind of go, oh, there's such a crybaby. Like, like, you know, we're judging there, eating our chips. Mm. What are we moaning about? Day 70, girl? 
you know, and it's, it's mad, isn't it? But they prepare themselves for the mountains and still fail. Because the mountain is the mountain. It just is. It's never changed. What does David do? David blames the mountain. He's angry. He blames God for being God. He blames God for being holy. He's angry at the mountain. And what we miss is this, and this is so important. Please, please hear this. We need the mountain to be the mountain. If you're going on an expedition or an adventure, you want the adventure. You want it to transform you. You want it to grow you. You want the feeling of, I'm on the mountain. You want the vista. You want the beauty. You want to be able to boast at how low your blood pressure is when you're climbing the mountain. You want to be able to, yes, we climb the mountain together. You need the mountain to be the mountain. No one's impressed with you going cross-country skiing on your driveway. You need the mountain to be the mountain. Can I say this? We need God to be God. We need God to be holy. We need God to be unchanging. And it might hurt. And it might shock us. And it might cause us to reevaluate. But we need God to be holy because it's his holiness that brings transformation and his presence into our life. We need God to be holy because without the standard, we have no idea of how sinful we are and how incredibly gracious he is that he would actually allow us to stand, forgive the analogy, on top of the mountain and enjoy the presence of the mountain and live out the mountain and enjoy the adventure of the mountain. We need God to be holy. But we get angry because God doesn't follow the tracks that we want him to. The mountain doesn't behave the way that we want the mountain to behave. And we get angry at the mountain just like David did. So David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? That, friends, is the start of the realization that David needs. That statement is the start of David's transformation. How can I bring God's holiness to me? Because it was that moment that God started to use this event to draw David and Israel back to himself. The shock, the horror, the silence, the what has just happened? How can I serve this God? David, the revelation starts happening. How can I have this God in my life? You see, David and Israel had drifted. They had gone after idols. David had drifted away from God at this time of his history. But God is calling them back in his grace and mercy. So actually this story is more about God's grace and mercy, about God's vehement, capricious action. It's about God calling David back. That sometimes God will shock us to remind us of our rebellion. Those really God moments have been perfectly used in our lives to bring us back to God. Because God is unwilling in his mercy and his grace to leave us unchanged. Because that transformation needs to happen in my life, and I'm pretty sure it needs to happen in your life, and I need God to be powerful enough to actually bring that transformation. So when we think about moral therapeutic deism, what we think about is bringing God down to our level. Can I tell you, we don't need God at our level 
We need a God whose thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts, who has the ability and the power to bring change into our lives. I don't want somebody to agree with me all the time. I need somebody to shock me into change and realization so that I actually come to my knees and say, God, how can you come to me in my sin? I need you. Because I know that sin is a disastrous condition of the heart. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. I kind of giggled a bit when I read this. I had this kind of visualization in my mind of David knocking on his door. Obed. How's it going, Obed? Um, So, here's the thing. I need you to look after something for me, but don't touch it. Just throw it in your garage, put a tarp over it, don't go anywhere near it, trust me, but I need you to look after it because I'm not taking it to my house, but I really want it in your house. Can you imagine Obey going, hang on a minute? Uh, Okay, so he throws it in his garage. It doesn't actually say that, it's deep in the Hebrew. He puts it in in his garage, throws a tarp over it, puts a bungee cord around it carefully, walks away. Just made me laugh. And the Lord blessed. The Lord blessed him and all his household. So not just you, Obed. I'm going to bless you and yours. I'm going to bless you more and more for three months. He had the best three months. Because God had blessed him. Why? Because it's the presence of God. It's the holiness of God. It's the grace of God. But what's really, really special about this verse is the realization on our part that David starts to understand that even in Israel and David's drifted state, he had the sense that he needed the presence of God in his life. Even when he was at his most rebellious, when they threw God on the back of a a new cart, at least he recognized he needed the presence of God in his life which echoes through his own writing. Look at this beautiful scripture. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. I don't need anything else. I just need to be in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You see, this amazing psalm is a reflection now of David's heart that all I need in my life is his presence. Everything else falls short. There is nothing as powerful and merciful and beautiful as having God in my life. And maybe this morning you've come into this place knowing, and I, and I love you enough to say it, knowing that you've drifted, knowing that you're in a rebellion, knowing that there's things going on in your life that have distanced you from God and His holiness. But God in His grace has started calling you back. Maybe He's used events in your life to shock you. Maybe this is the first time in a long time that you've come back to church, but you had a sense that this is where you needed to be. Can I say why? One thing. One thing you need is the presence of God. Because at that mercy seat is found forgiveness and love and grace and holiness. But please understand, you can't come to the mountain in any old way. Maybe you've played outside God's design for you and you've drifted away, but you're starting to understand the depth of your sin. You're starting to hear the words of a kind and loving God saying that he said to Adam and Eve right at the beginning, where are you? And it was told King David, he heard, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him. 
because of the ark of God. Why was he blessed? It wasn't Obed-Edom's new cart. It wasn't his methods. It wasn't his bright ideas. It wasn't taking a little bit of this religion and a little bit of that religion, a bit of new age, and I'm going to rub a bit of crystals, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go and hug a tree, and and I'm going to do a bit of spiritual yoga, and I'm going to do this. He, He didn't come up with his own plan. He approached in the recognition that it was God that brought blessing in God's way. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. So now, David is approaching the mountain in a way that the mountain is accepting him. With sacrifice. Ooh, don't like that idea. Please understand, God is holy, even in his requirement for a sacrifice. And we know that this is a beautiful image of what Hebrews tells us is the sacrifice of all sacrifices. That Jesus Christ was placed on the altar once and for all. He was the sacrifice of all sacrifice. And here's the good news, friends. Just like Jeremiah predicted, we don't need the Ark of the Covenant anymore because we don't just approach the presence of God. We have the presence of God in our lives. That we can stand on the pinnacle of the mountain called God and enjoy all the adventure and the views and the, and the joy that that mountain brings but without actually having climb it. Now, some of you are a bit disappointed because you like to climb it. But can I tell you, this isn't a mountain you are required to climb. You don't need to build your own ark. You don't, sorry, you don't need to build your new cart, your new methods. Because those new methods seem to have a way of disappointing us. But Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, all who are drifting, all who are uh, rebelling, all of you who have those secret sins in your life, come to me. I am gentle and kind. I will take you to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. I lift my eyes up. Maybe your carts are just not working. And that's okay. Maybe your methods are not there. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter how great your new carts look and sound It's never, ever going to be enough to bridge the gap between you and God's holiness. We need God to be holy because it tells us of how how short we are of that and how much we need the cross of Christ. And this church is founded on the belief and the value of prayer and confession. And so it might be that you have drifted for a long time and you need to come back to the Lord, the mountain of God today. But maybe you're just in the thick of Christian life and you've got these really God moments and there's just this sense of you bringing God into the judgment of your own heart and you allow things just to drift for a little while. Can I tell you through confession and prayer and willow on prayer and all the things that uh, Phil constantly reminds us about, it's that time when we can actually go, okay, let's come back. Just like David did, we come to that realization and God is loving and kind and merciful to welcome us back. Why wouldn't we do that this morning? It's the greatest gift. We have to approach the mountain in the way that the mountain decides. And God, in his wisdom, 
decided Jesus. Have you, in your wisdom, decided Jesus? Or are you still persevering with your cart? No matter how much you steady that thing, it's only going to bring misery, death at worst. And I'll finish with this. David's desire for the presence of God was intense. He party hard after. In fact, so much so he got criticism for dancing so hard. Can you imagine that in a Mennonite church? <gasps> Too much dancing. He partied hard. He rejoiced. His desire for God was intense. He could not rest. He needed the presence of God in his city, in his family, and in his life. And I just wonder this morning, have you ever longed for God like that? Are you longing for God like that right now? You say, Lord Jesus, I can't rest or find any peace until I have made a place for you in my life. Let's pray. Just invite the worship team to come. I just want you to close your eyes and bow your head because this is a word for us all. Dear Lord, Father, we we stand before scriptures like these and Lord, we confess we're easy to judge and decide as to how you are and what you do and what you should do. And so, Father, we confess that and we ask your forgiveness for making you too small and making you the forgotten God. Lord, we bow our heads before you now, recognizing our need for you. Thankful, Lord, that you are an unchanging God and that you are holy. And Lord, I pray that you'd give each one of us a revelation of what that means this morning. Not just for others, but for our own hearts. Lord, we confess there are times when we don't long after you. That like David, we're angry and we're afraid. Forgive us, Father. Lord, we pray, just like David prayed, create in us a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within us. like to pray for you. If you have, just with everybody's heads bowed, if, if you have been in, you are, or you find yourself in a place where you have drifted a long way, and you know that you have been angry and fearful and there's been stuff in your life where you're just kind of going, really God? But this morning you're actually hearing his voice whisper, come to me. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the first time in a long time. If that is you this morning, I'd love to pray with you. If you could just put your hand up. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. Just want to see and I want to pray for you. If that is you this morning, thank you. Bless you at the back.
what I'm going to ask as we pray for these people who have just put their hands up and thank you for doing that that if you've just felt like I just need to reconnect with the presence of God I just need that fresh sense of his presence and his love and his grace in my life I haven't felt it for a little while or you just want more of it would you stand with me as we worship together. Just stand now as we worship. Thank you, Lord. Father, we just pray now in the name of Jesus for those who put their hand up and said, yes, Lord, I've been drifting a long time. Lord, I'm thankful you are God of salvation, that, Lord, you bring new life, that you, Lord, bring holiness, that you give us the ability to see transformation and change in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray now in the name of Jesus that as we sing, that, God, that they would sense your presence. They would not leave this place without maybe getting a response pack or seeking some prayer. And, Lord, for the rest of us standing, Lord, we stand in recognition of your beauty. So grateful, Lord, for who you are and what you have done. And so, Lord, I pray now that as you hear the singing, as you promise that, Lord, you would inhabit the praises of your people, that you would fill this place, you bring refreshment to our hearts, renewal to our minds and our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.